where does your Christmas story begin? Now, I'm not talking about when you first were old enough to realize that every December 25th you could get a passel of gifts. I mean, when did you first understand that December 25th was about Jesus? When did you first realize that this is the day we set aside to commemorate as his birthday? When did you first come to understand that we give each other undeserved gifts on Christmas in order to commemorate the fact that Jesus is our undeserved gift? We don't deserve the light that he brings into the darkness of our lives. We don't deserve the mercy that he extends to demonstrate his compassion and his care. And yet he offers these things to us freely. That's the essence of the story of Christmas. And our own personal Christmas stories, yours and mine, they begin when we grasp what this day means. And then we let the meaning of Christmas actually affect the way that we live. My Christmas story began at age 17 when I became a follower of Jesus. For years, I'd been enjoying Christmas as a wonderful time to be together with family, to experience special meals, to experience the joy of giving. Yet when I realized that Christmas was about Jesus, everything changed. The meaning of the day changed. And the momentary joy of the season was replaced by the lasting joy of being connected to God the Father through his son, Jesus, because he is our gift, the gift of Christmas. So where does your Christmas story begin? And where does the Christmas story begin in the Bible? We might think that the Christmas story begins when an angel appears to Mary and announces that she is miraculously going to become pregnant. We might look back further in time to the ancient prophecies about Jesus recorded in the Old Testament, prophecies like the ones in Isaiah, which tell us that Jesus is going to be born of a virgin, that he is going to come as our Prince of Peace. Is that where the Christmas story begins? Actually, the Christmas story begins before human history because Jesus existed long before he was born. The story of Christmas begins with creation because Jesus was present when God made the heavens and the earth. Jesus was present at creation because he is God. And somehow, in ways that we cannot understand, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all are distinct and yet united. They are different facets and different personalities of our one God. And so Jesus was with the Father and the Spirit living outside of space and time and enjoying a freedom of existence that we barely can comprehend. And as God, he created everything that we can see. He created everything that we can know. And then most amazingly, 
our creator stepped away from all of that for a season of time. He stepped away from heavenly existence and embraced human existence. Jesus went from creator to infant. From creation to Christmas. So the story of Christmas really begins in heaven. Because that's where Jesus voluntarily surrendered himself. He surrendered himself to come and live here as a man. And that fact is described for us in several places in the Bible. Where I want us to look at this morning is the writing of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians chapter 2 verses 5, 6, and 7. As he writes about God becoming a man. Paul writes and says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now this short little passage is just one part of a longer letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians living in the ancient city of Philippi, located today in the modern nation of Greece. And in this part of the letter, Paul is encouraging the Philippian Christians to embrace some humility, to let humility show up in their lives, and he points to Jesus as their role model. And what could be a better role model for humility than God himself? The God who voluntarily sacrificed the limitless world of heaven for the limited world of mankind. He went from limitless to limited. He made the decision to live among us as one of us so we could know God personally. Jesus, our creator, refused to cling to the position and the power and the authority that he had in heaven. And instead, he willingly surrendered it all. He surrendered it all so we could see God face to face. And I think if we're honest, we have to recognize that we don't tend to surrender things easily as Jesus seems to do here. In fact, we like it when we find an area of life where we have influence or power or respect. And when we identify those things, we tend to hold on to them. We don't like to surrender them. Here's an example. Some of us have the responsibility and the privilege of being parents. And part of the role that we might enjoy about being a a parent is giving advice to our kids. There can be great meaning, and we can have a sense of purpose in imparting our wisdom and experience and knowledge on to our children. And it's really good that we do that. It's really important that we do that. And yet, as our children grow older, we have to change. And we have to allow them to make more and more decisions on their own. For them to become responsible and independent adults, we have to start letting go. And yet, it doesn't come easily. And that's the reason that some of us can find it hard to stop telling our kids what to do even when they're grown-ups. 
when they are mature and independent and responsible and don't want or need our advice. And here's what I have deduced from all of this. It can be hard to change, and sometimes the reason that we resist change is we don't like to loosen our grip on things that we find meaningful. We don't like letting go. And this is true not just for parents. It's true for people like athletes and entertainers who enjoy the limelight. And they might be able, not be able to accept the fact that they're past their prime and it's time to quit, it's time to hang up the cleats or bring their show to a close. They need to be done. It's hard to let go. This can be true of business executives who, who revel in their position and their title and their power and they don't want to give that up by retiring. Letting go can be hard for church leaders. Church leaders whose identity is tied up in their role. That's their identity. and So they have a hard time letting go and passing the mantle of leadership on to others. Our human nature is to tend to cling to things. And we often cling to them because they mean so much to us. And what we find here in this Bible passage is that the way of Jesus is so very, very different. He didn't cling to anything. Our Creator willingly let go of His position and His power and His privileges. And He came and lived as a man. It is one of the most powerful demonstrations of humility we ever will see. And I find myself wondering, is this an area of life where you and I can live as more faithful followers of Jesus? Can we also make the decision not to cling to things when it's time to let go? And when by letting go, we can do something significant for others. It's never easy because letting go always means embracing change. Look what it meant for Jesus. For him to embrace this change, I don't think we can even really begin to comprehend what he went through. As God, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God, he knew exactly what it was like to live as a human being. He didn't have to experience it. And if by making the choice to come to earth to live as a human being, he now would experience the reality of human life. And he chose to arrive in this world at a time without modern conveniences, without modern transportation, without the joys of digital technology, which sometimes work and sometimes doesn't, as we saw this morning. And the reality for Jesus, then, is that he walked or rode a donkey down the dusty roads of Israel. All of his communication took place face to face. And at the end of a day, he would sit down to a meal with perhaps aching vocal cords and tired and sore calves and thighs. And throughout his days, he experienced the whole array of human emotions, sorrow and happiness, disappointment and joy, grief and gladness. He was exposed to the whole array of human temptations, selfishness, gluttony, pride, anger, lust. He had to deal with all of those things. He didn't yield to them, but they were there 
and I find myself wondering, Jesus, why would you go through that? Why not just stay home in heaven and spare yourself that? There's only one logical answer. He did it for us. Clearly, this transition, this change, this letting go, it had nothing to do with his comfort or his status. He didn't gain anything from it, but we did. He humbly gave up heaven for you and for me. And that's why Christmas is a gift. Christmas memorializes the God who gave himself to us as a gift. And I find it all rather amazing. I find it a bit overwhelming. And yet there's something that I find even more amazing than this part of the story we've explored so far. Jesus, as God, could have shown up in our world at any time and in any way that he wanted, which means he could have chosen to arrive as a fully formed, self-sufficient adult. He could have just appeared and started telling people the good news. But he didn't. Instead, he arrived as a helpless baby. I marvel at that our creator willingly made himself dependent on the human beings that he himself had created. And that's what became a reality on the very first Christmas. as described in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Luke, as he chronicles this biography of Jesus' life, writes here, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. I'm sure this Bible passage is very familiar to many of you. And this part of the Christmas story is interesting because it begins with an edict from Caesar, the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he demands that everyone in that empire participate in a census. The purpose of that census is to record what land you own, to record what land you have a legal connection to so you can be properly entered on the tax rolls. And there's an interesting piece of this because for Jewish people, The owning of family lands was sacred. There was a whole lot of land in ancient Israel that never was sold. It was simply passed through the family and handed down from generation to generation because it was the family's land. Even if you never lived in a particular community, you actually might have a legal connection to property in that place because it belonged to your family. 
And therefore, in order to comply with this census, you had to go to that town and register. Now, if we begin to think for just a moment about the logistics of this, complying with Caesar's decree is hugely inconvenient for everyone. It results in a season of chaos because most people in the empire have to interrupt their lives and they have to travel somewhere to get this done. And they have to get it done within a very short period of time. I was trying to think of a way for us to maybe begin to picture what this might be like or what it might feel like for us if we were imposed upon in this way. So let's pretend that somehow the federal government of our country was able to demand that during the month of January, less than two weeks from now, during the month of January, every person born in the U.S. had to go to the town where they were born and sign some kind of governmental document. And every immigrant had to go to the town where they first established residency, and they had to sign that same kind of document. Now, if the government was able to do that, it would be hugely intrusive for the great majority of Americans. For most of us, it would involve some kind of travel. Many of you would have to travel to another city in Oregon in order to comply. Some of us, like me, would have to travel to another state to comply. And this would interrupt our lives. It would interrupt our family schedules. It would impact businesses as staff members took time off in order to meet the demands of the government. It would be absolutely chaotic and disruptive. It would be an unplanned expenditure of time and money and effort. And I imagine most of us would deeply, deeply resent it. And yet, what Caesar is doing here isn't that unusual for the ancient world. This kind of thing did take place from time to time, and people had no choice but to tolerate it. So Mary and Joseph, they have no other option. Whether they want to or not, they're going to Bethlehem. And so they head off on this journey that's 80-plus miles. Joseph probably walks the entire way, leading a donkey. Mary would be riding the donkey because she's extremely pregnant. It's a tedious and uncomfortable journey for both of them, but particularly for Mary because of the advanced stage of her pregnancy. And after they arrive, after being on the road for several days, they discover that the population of the little village of Bethlehem has temporarily exploded as people come from all over to comply with the demands of the emperor. And in this little village of Bethlehem, there's probably only one inn. And it would have a few indoor guest rooms and a number of outdoor stalls where people can stay. Local residents would be renting out rooms, turning Caesar's edict into an opportunity to make a few extra dollars. And temporarily, the demand for lodging has overwhelmed the resources of that town. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were over in Pendleton, Oregon. Met some locals, and they told us about an event called the Pendleton Roundup. Some of you may have been there. We've not, but we sure heard about it. And for one week every year during the Pendleton Roundup, that city is inundated and it is organized chaos. 
Pendleton has a year-round population of a little over 16,000 people. And during the roundup, they host 50,000 guests. The hotels fill up. City parking lots are turned into RV sites. Residents open up their homes and they rent out space for guests to park and even camp on their property. People stay anywhere and everywhere, and sometimes there just isn't enough room for everyone. That's the kind of thing that's taking place in ancient Bethlehem and the events leading up to the very first Christmas. By the time Joseph and Mary arrive, every available space is occupied and and as a result, they have to settle down in some kind of stable. Inside that stable, they find an unused feeding trough and they use that as a cradle for their newborn son. And all of this, all of this is an incredibly strange way for Jesus to show up in his world. Think about what he is choosing to do. Born to parents without position or power or privilege, people who have no choice but to comply with the demands of Caesar. Parents who can't find a reasonable place to spend the night. We know that if Caesar showed up in Bethlehem, oh, they'd make space for him. He'd get the best lodging in town. But that's not true for the parents of the Creator. Because Jesus does not come into His world making demands. He chooses to come into this world as a helpless baby who spends his first night in a stable. A baby who makes himself completely dependent on Joseph and Mary. It is an incredibly humble arrival for the creator of the universe. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he voluntarily surrender the delight of heaven? And why does he voluntarily make himself dependent on humans that he created? We've been exploring that over the past three weeks. And as we've seen, Jesus came to live among us as one of us so we could know God personally. Jesus came into this world to bring God's light into the darkness of our lives and into our very dark world. Jesus came to bring God's mercy into our lives and into our world. Jesus came because he wants us to experience God's compassion and God's care. He wants us to respond to his gift, to his offer of love, so he can help set us right. And as he sets us right, then we can help to set this world right. This amazing mystery of God, the creator, taking human form as a baby, lies at the heart of the Christmas story. The creator who came into this world with great humility. And by doing so, he became our greatest Christmas gift. So I find myself wondering once, once again, what's, what's your Christmas story? Where did your Christmas story start? 
When did you first understand that Christmas was about Jesus and you made the reality of Jesus part of your daily life? So Christmas wasn't just a once-a-year event, but a day-to-day experience of following Jesus. This season is a great time to reflect on the gift of Jesus in your life and mine. As you prepare to celebrate Christmas on Tuesday, I want to encourage you to take some time to thank your Creator for humbly coming to rescue you, to give you the gift of His light and His love and His mercy. I also find myself wondering this. Could it be that you're sitting here and you don't have your own Christmas story yet? Could it be that as you understand from what we've just said, the meaning of Christmas, that you kind of feel like you're on on the outside looking in? Because the Christmas story is not yet real for you? Well, if so, I want to invite you to unwrap the greatest Christmas gift of all. I want to invite you to get connected to Jesus, the God who surrendered heaven for you. He surrendered heaven for you. And if you want to understand how you can receive what Jesus wants to bring into your life, we'd love to talk with you about that. In a couple of minutes, as we wrap up our service, we'll have church leaders over in the prayer corner, and you can make your way over there, and they would consider it a privilege to pray with you, to talk with you, and to help you start to write your very own Christmas story this morning before you leave. There's always an invitation at Christmas. The invitation is this, to let our Creator make Christmas real in our lives. That's His gift to each of us. Embrace it. Embrace it.